Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Me? I always tell the truth. Even when I lie. So say goodnight to the bad guy. The great and has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, the evolutionary psychologist Jeffrey Miller, tweeted out that empathy for cheap virtue signaling is how civilization fails. You're someone who feels empathy for virtue signaling. <laughs> Do you hate civilization? Are you trying to bring it down? Yeah, I, I hate civilization, man. I, I'm, I'm all in favor of going back to fucking living in caves with little loin cloths. And uh, what does that even mean, destroying civilization? I, I'll tell you. So, I mean, look, if he puts cheap virtue signaling in the words, then sure, like it's like saying, sure, it brings down civilization. No, no, no. Sure, it's a bad thing. But the hyperbole of bringing down civilizations is just like, is that really necessary? I have a feeling that he might be reacting to uh, some the thing that we're about to talk about. No, I can tell you what he's re- reacting about. It, it actually is so it started it was in a thread about like climate change people and, you know, people who say they're so concerned about climate change. He was saying, ask them if they're more worried about this aspect of it or that aspect of it, not, which I had never heard of. The implication being they won't know because they don't know shit about climate change. They just know that they're supposed to be like really worried about uh, really worried about it as a as a threat to to the world. So <laughs> I which I actually kind of agree with. I think people's confidence that they can speak very strongly about climate change and what we need to do, you know, doesn't reflect their knowledge of, of, of really anything. It just, it's like third hand knowledge based on other people they might know who has read, who have read the real scientific literature on it, who are familiar, who is familiar with it. So, you know, he pointed that out and he was being kind of a dick about it, but I actually sort of agree with where he was coming from then but then yeah then as somebody said maybe you know being snide about it isn't the best idea you could just try to be a little nicer about it and and then and then this is when he tweeted that and it's just such a ridiculous <laughs> it's one of the most ridiculous tweets that you know i see on my timeline it's the downfall the downfall of civilization. you know i so to speak to the climate change thing like yeah i mean like 99.9% of my knowledge is that is like that. It's like somebody who 
not even the I've not talked to even the experts, but somebody who who knows an expert or something like that, right? It get, it gets to me. It's like you know, there's some level of epistemological faith I have that that I should be worried. You know, Jeffrey Miller's knowledge of climate change is the same, right? Like it's not <laughs> like I doubt he's read the primary literature. Like, no, right, but that's consistent. Yeah. So then, yeah. like, be silent. But you know, you are fairly silent about climate change. You're not going. I think his problem with is with the people who make it a big issue while still also not really knowing anything about it. Um, I mean, I, I will agree that cheap virtue signaling is one of the most annoying things I see on Twitter. There's a guy I follow, um, and I won't name names, but <laughs> he, he not only has he said that he's tired of uh, all of the virtue signaling on Twitter instead of like going out and doing the right thing. He's like, he, he said that in one tweet. And then not long after he tweeted out, turns out I'm looking for a new job and I'd like to work for an um, underrepresented minority or a woman. Can anybody point me in the right direction? Oh my God. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> just look for a fucking job, dude. Like, <laughs> oh, God. No, it is really annoying. And I think, you know, you and I probably find it annoying, but for some people it makes them lose their mind. Like it really does. They, you know, the same thing with like gender studies and some of those kinds of kids on campus being sanctimonious. Like some people just can't, can't handle it. And they, it turns otherwise smart people into people <laughs> who say that civilization fails because of cheap, you know, as someone pointed out on the thread, like what's the evidence of that? Like, if those people don't have evidence about climate change, <laughs> the historical, like, fall of civilizations is tied to empathy. Not even just virtue signaling. Oh, right, right. It's empathy em- for virtue <laughs> Empathy for, the, for <laughs> virtue signaling. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. I, well, obviously. I don't mean... <laughs> I feel like it's... it's uh, Rome. If he feels it, it's true. <laughs> Greece. <laughs> Uh, maybe he should spend more time in the hot tub with climate change grad students. Yes. Oh, nice transition. <laughs> Thank you. So we should say what we're going to talk about today first and then. Yeah, we're going to talk about Nietzsche complaining like Jeffrey Miller about the Greeks. <laughs> I, that's not how I would describe what Nietzsche is doing. But yes, he is also in a snarky, contemptuous mood in the piece that we read, Twilight of the Idols. So we'll talk about that in the second segment. Before I introduce this, I f- I'll just say right now that I feel like a busybody talking about this and we've railed against moral busybodies, but fuck it, I have to talk about it anyway. Um, this is a, a news story that, that just hit at least my Twitter timeline that um, a George Mason University psych professor sued George Mason University because he felt that a Title IX ruling against him was unfair and then it got dismissed. But but here's here's the the things that that he did. So he filed suit and it was dismissed, but he claimed that he was biased there, there was bias against him for being a man because the complaints that he received were from I believe four graduate students and they were about him just being inappropriate. So one of the things that he did, which I want to talk to you about whether did you have the, the gut reaction that this was inappropriate or not. Um, one of the things he did was in teaching a class about sexuality, <laughs> as an example of exhibitionism, he gave a personal anecdote of getting sucked off at a party. And the, w- 
And the woman saying that she wanted other people to watch. Apparently, some students didn't like that he used a personal example <laughs> of getting sucked off in a fart. I feel like he was bragging. Well, for sure he was. And, <laughs> and then the idea that that was just, you know, part of the, like, how else are you going to teach if you can't uh, tell that's your what, class yeah, that's what, <laughs> about the that's time? That's what his claim was. <laughs> he's like, dude, I'm just using relevant examples. I mean, thank God he's not teaching a class on serial killers. And it wasn't him. She, the, it was her that was the example. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, she was the example of whatever it was he was trying to illustrate. And, you know, he just happened to be the one getting a blowjob at the party. Right. He, and he had to acquiesce because, you know, this was her disorder, not his. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this is, oh, and then God. what's the other one? Uh, he also attended a strip club with graduate students and got a lap dance. That one doesn't seem, I mean, if they all wanted to go to a strip club... Like, you know, you get a lap so, dance at a strip Okay, party. so here, so that that's the second incident. And then there was a third one that he had a party at his home and they, the graduate students ended up in the hot tub um, discussing lots of stuff. And then while he was in the hot tub with the other students, he gave another anecdote about some sexual ex- escapade. And I, I don't remember in what Europe, the anecdote in yeah. Europe was. Yeah, I don't think they give the details of that one. Like the, the, the giving details about about your sexual life to your graduate students in a hot tub his claim was look if it were a pool you wouldn't be bitching which i guess i mean i don't know if that's true i mean i don't think you would end up in a pool like intimately discussing your sexual life. like i don't think like i you know there's nothing wrong with have be, being in a hot tub with grad students i think that he's missing the point that that there was some sort of attitude that he had toward talking about his sex life in a way that made people uncomfortable. So it turns out, you know, he's he's tenured. He's actually really highly cited. Um, you know, he's done a lot of work on on well being and on sexuality. Um, he's like probably my age, maybe younger, and has like a good jillion publications, and has been cited like way more than I'll ever be cited. He, he has tenure. He didn't lose his job. What he got was a stern talking to, and uh, he didn't get a raise. And I believe he was sanctioned to not, like, he's not allowed to have female, maybe female grad students. Not forever, right? But just... Not forever, just for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, and he seems genuinely flabbergasted by this. Like, I'm, you know, I don't know the guy. Like, he had a, tw- he had a, like, a tweet storm saying, like, don't don't judge me too soon. Like you'll see this is, this is, uh, unreasonable. But what, what really shocks me is that anybody would defend, let alone counter sue things like telling your students that kind of shit. Like, I mean, and I'm one to say inappropriate shit, like, like quite a bit, but like, well, I think the key is he made them feel uncomfortable, right? Like, I think there's a reason why, those sanctions were brought against him and complaints were made. There probably is a way to, I don't know about in the class talking about a blowjob you got in a, that that's just not appropriate. Like someone no said, who. just, just pretend it was someone else. Yeah. You know, just, but, but like if you were, if you weren't this kind of person and, and people just knew you and knew you had a good heart and you didn't have designs on the students or in a way that would be like forceful or uh, uncomfortable. Well, like I think you could probably do the hot tub thing, right? 
and maybe even the strip club thing depend as long as it was the students that asked him to do it rather than him asking the students to do it. Right. I I mean, I, I think you're right. I think that, that there is probably, you know, still a chance that a, a loan incident could get you in trouble. Um, even if you are a person of good character, but I agree with you that that's not what, <laughs> what happened, what's happening here. Like they're, they, they're pa- painting a portrait of somebody who is, frequently making people uncomfortable and doesn't even realize it. I don't know. It's hard to make really confident judgments. You know the guy, right? You've met him. Or- I, I've met I've met him, you know, and I it but it is. So that I I don't I don't want to prematurely judge him. I it sounds though like he was re- like what sorry, what I'm trying to say is I don't know what the punishment should be, right? For making people uncomfortable in the way that he did. But what what strikes me is that he doesn't seem to understand that that's what he was doing, right? He's just like arguing the point. And it's like, well, fuck, dude. If like I honestly, Tamler, I genuinely believe there are things that I have said that have made people uncomfortable. And like on this podcast, you made me uncomfortable all the time. <laughs> so you're squirming in your chair all the time. Um, I don't, you know. I want to know. I want to know. And I, I'm trying. But it, all I know is that if somebody told me that, I would be like, fuck, dude, I'm sorry. You know, like I really and like to just accept whatever the school said. Yeah, I don't know. It's just is not. But he's making it into a free speech thing now. And, and Jeffrey Miller, speaking of, you know, tweeted to him like get help from fire.org because this is an issue of free speech. And it's like, is it? Is it? Yeah. As a legal issue. I, I don't know. It doesn't sound like an issue of free speech that you're that you it's constitutionally protected for you to talk about your blowjob you got at a party. Right. But, Apparently, I got it wrong. He was he was giving her head, which is. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I guess there's no reason why that's maybe that's better. I don't know. <laughs> but still, uh, I don't know, like the so as a, as a constitutional legal issue, I don't know. Apparently, that's what the lawsuit was about. So I guess not. But as a as a principle, like as somebody, <laughs> I, I consider myself for free speech. But like I also, but that doesn't mean you talk about like eating a girl out at a party in front of your class. Like the, the was it, it was it grad students or undergrads? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think it was grad students. Um, uh, two of the women, personal description of students. I, I think it was grad students, but yeah. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a Louis, it might be a Louis CK kind of thing where this is just the kind of stuff that he likes. He knows it's edgy. He knows it's, I mean, we can relate to that, that line that you walk where you're being provocative and you're being, um, inappropriate and some people walk it better than others, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I you know I have a couple of friends, and these are like good friends in academia, and I, I really worry about them because they are creepy. I've seen them be creepy, right? And I'm not, again, look like I. It's You're totally no possible angel. I've done right, but, but like routinely, and I've seen the faces of women who they're being creepy to. And they don't seem to be able to read those cues. It's like a weird, like, spectrum disorder just for sex stuff, you know? Yeah, and then he has a Coke 
foundation like grant again like that's what i was gonna say speech like, related I, I wonder if he was like almost pressured into filing this suit oh i didn't think about it because my first thought was it shouldn't matter that he has a coke uh grant but i don't know well you know like i think the there is this kind of rallying cry for some of these people like if he was initially sort of inclined to just be like this sucks but fuck it all right i'll just take the sanctions and then, like, got with people who were really appalled and offended on his behalf and urged him to do this. Because um, it just seems like drud- like dredging up the lawsuit was just a counterproductive in every way. Like, now they're trying to, they're trying to do more. Well, and, you know, apparently the, he, he tried to file suit as a John Doe so that the attention wouldn't come and the, the judge said, no, you have to use your name. Um, but... In using his name, then it became sort of, uh, you know, matter of record. And now they don't, they're trying to make him not be able to teach undergrads, right? Oh, I, I don't, I don't know. I didn't see that. That's what I thought I saw that. Um, the one thing is he does seem like he was a very popular, good teacher. So that makes me think maybe most of the time he got away with this kind of stuff. And so maybe the... The shock on his behalf is I've been doing this for years and it seemed like people enjoyed it. What, what changed, you know? This, yeah, this is something that I've um, also seen in some professors. There was one pr- professor in particular who was very popular uh, at my institution a few years ago who was creepy and he made a lot of women uncomfortable and he ended up having to retire before he wanted to because of the complaints but there were a lot, a lot of people, including young women, who loved him and weren't bothered at all by any of that. And so they came to his defense. And it's I don't think they're wrong, but I don't think the uncomfortable people are wrong either. It's just shit gets complicated. But I can see not getting the feedback right. If, if what you get are positive letters from female undergrads saying, like, I really enjoyed your class, you know, like, I can see being surprised at, at somebody filing a complaint. You know that the pe- there's going to be people who get mad at us for this discussion, that we're giving too much to the coddled generation where we're allowing them to like dictate the lives of professors who are just trying to uh, make their classes entertaining and, and educational. And I don't know, like maybe you especially, because you've been single. I don't know if we can talk about this, but you you have until recently been single for a big, a long period of time as you've been a professor and, and you are who you are, then people know on this podcast and, you know, there hasn't been complaints about you. I mean, this one time, dude, I was licking a girl's pussy and she <laughs> wanted everybody to watch. Yeah. No, I know. <laughs> See, this is that squirming thing. I'm going to file. Can I file some sort of complaint? Who do I file? Is there a podcasting board or something? Oh, man. I mean... <laughs> I so here's the thing like to to the to the accusation of coddling for one I'm I'm actually trying to go out of my way to give Cashton here some benefit of the doubt at least in terms of his own knowledge of what he was doing you know there are a lot of female academics who I know who say this is nothing in my generation like guys were pulling out their dicks and and you know like we we had to deal with it and I made it an academic, so, like, I'm not going to, well, like, how are you complaining about him bringing up some sexual experience? Like, fair fair enough, but, but like, shit was worse back then, right? Like, presumably, like, I think things are getting better, 
by not making people uncomfortable. Like, I don't think the claim is that they didn't make people uncomfortable back then. I think it was just that there's a selection bias. The people who weren't that bothered by it made it all the way through. Yeah, no, but I think the idea is more that the people who are most inclined to be offended are now governing the rules. And so, you know, the rest of the people, the vast majority of whom, like, know how to handle this stuff are just not allowed to have any fun anymore. So, like, you see this. Here's where I would agree with that point of view. Um, There are people who say you should never have functions with alcohol at an at an event, you know, with grad students and professors because some people don't drink and drinking makes them uncomfortable plus that makes people more likely to be sexually inappropriate and say racially sexually inappropriate things and so uh so you just shouldn't have alcohol at a at a, a party with uh in a uh, professional context. Has has your department done anything like that? No. Yeah, no. I was like you would be you would be on the job market if you could drink a <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, and, and so, and you know, like our honors college is also a fairly big drinking it's, but it's definitely gone down a little bit <laughs> since the old days where it was more bacchanalial, but, but, but like, you know, there are people who make those kinds of complaints and there I agree with the side that says, while all of that is true, I don't think we need to make the rules so that even one person doesn't feel as comfortable as they would if, you know, we banned this or that or this kind of speech or that or alcohol or whatever. Right. There, I mean, it's quite possible that there are some people who are super irrational about taking offense. Uh, like, I, I buy that. I, I, I think, though, the judgment does still have to take into account maybe the people who are at the far end of the spectrum of reasonable offense taking. Like, I don't mind targeting the culture for that. I mean, you know, like, yes, shit's less fun, but also people fucking did cocaine in the bathroom in the 70s all the time. Shit's less fun than it is then. And probably we shouldn't, you know. That's a bad example. We should be doing more cocaine in the bathroom. <laughs> but I, I, get, I get your general point. <laughs> My department has issued a decree, <laughs> no cocaine in the bathroom at public events. <laughs> really <laughs> that's the way the like free speech crowd can get to me giving examples of alcohol being banned at like academic events like i'll turn into more like one of those people who just makes it their personal crusade to you know reverse like, the <laughs> hypersensitivity yeah don't take my alcohol <laughs> bill cosby was wrongfully accused <laughs> oh man yeah well i i the one thing I hope that comes out of this is that, like, people – I don't want people to be afraid, but just be sense, like be a little more sensitive than this. I don't know. No. Be more sensitive. So that's what our podcast is now. Be more sensitive Empathy. people. Be, be more empathic to the virtue signaling that I'm trying to provide right now <laughs> in, order, <laughs> in order to protect myself against the backlash. <laughs> Je- yeah, no, Jeffrey Miller's not going to like – God bless Jeff Miller. Yeah, we can dis- we can agree to disagree. Exactly. Yeah, but do you remember we talked about him on the podcast oh, early on? Yeah, and I don't like I've I've never I've wanted to never like because we were pretty harsh. <laughs> well, it was pretty fucking bad. <laughs> like why? Yeah, why would you do that? It was it was an experiment. 
Remember? He said it was an experiment, like, to see how people reacted to inappropriate It tweets. was an experiment to see what happens when you take, like, a bunch of Ambien and then go on Twitter. Uh, oh, shit, man. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully we still have our jobs because, you know, they're cutting back. <laughs> they're cutting back. They, we've both gotten emails from our institutions giving, uh, asking for advice for how to save money. And I feel like somebody could easily say, fire David and Townley. Yeah, no, I hope that's not what... Oh, man. Uh, Fortunately, that wouldn't save them that much money, so... <laughs> no, that's right. All right, we'll be right back to talk about Nietzsche. We're sponsored this week by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a returning sponsor, and that's something that we're actually quite... Uh, happy about because um, I think that means that many of you have tried it out and are getting the help that you need. And let's be honest, if you are listening to us for this long, there's a good chance that you might need therapy. But not all of us can get it, especially at a time like this when uh, many of us are having trouble leaving our house just to get groceries, let alone to set up a ther- therapist appointment. Um, BetterHelp is there for you. What is it? It's a service that once you sign up, they will assess your needs. They'll match you with your own licensed professional therapist. There, in under 24 hours, you'll be able to message a therapist, get a a thoughtful response back very quickly, or you can uh, set up a video or phone session and meet weekly, all, again, without having to leave the comfort of your own home. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline therapy, uh, but if you need it, financial help is available. The service is also available across all 50 states of the United States and worldwide. So if you're looking for help uh, across any of the areas that you might seek help from a therapist, so whether you're suffering from perhaps depression or stress and anxiety, uh, maybe you're having trouble sleeping or you find yourself getting angry too often, or maybe you just need a little bump to get you back to that level of happiness that you might be looking for. Anything that you share is obviously confidential. Again, these are professional therapists. They take this sort of thing seriously. If you want to know a little bit more about what the service is or how it works, you can go to betterhelp.com and check out some of their testimonials. There you can hear from people who have used the service. They they post these testimonials daily and you'll get a, a little bit of better sense of what kind of service it is. So if you are looking for this kind of help, please go to betterhelp.com slash VBW. If you use that URL, uh, there's a special dear for deal for our listeners. BetterHelp will give you 10% off of your first month. So join the other 800,000 people or so who have already tried out BetterHelp and go to BetterHelp, that's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash V-B-W. We'd like to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the podcast where we would like to take a moment and thank all of our listeners and supporters and tell you how you can get in touch with us. We've had some really good feedback on episodes through email, on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, all of that. And we really enjoy enjoy that. So um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet at us at Very Bad Wizards, at Tamler or at Pease. You can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can uh, like us on Facebook, comment on our episodes there. You can follow us on Instagram, also comment on our episodes there. You can uh, join the conversation at the subreddit, the Very Bad Wizard subreddit. Um, you can rate us on Apple Podcasts. That's a good way to help get the word out. Even though we've been here for eight years, there's still people who don't know about us, if that's like yeah, if you can believe it's that. unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, like Obama should be like you know, like emailing us <laughs> after his end of the year top <laughs> podcast list. Uh especially after our intro segment today. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um you know that he was he was in some hot tubs with some grad students. <laughs> it was a different time. <laughs> it's a different, it's a different time. time. Yeah. Um, uh, yes. So thank all of you. We really enjoy the emails that we get are that mean a lot. They really do. And we appreciate them. Yeah. All of the, all of the contact, I find, especially now during this stupid COVID thing, um, like I'm just, a little, I'm a little bit more on Reddit and on email and, you know, it's, it's actually nice to, to hear from everybody. I had a little more time. You were teaching. I was just fucking around. <laughs> you were being idle. Yeah, I was being. I was, I was taking Bertrand Russell to heart. Um, if you want to support us in more tangible ways, something that actually, you know, like I really appreciate. I know that a lot of people are going through some shit right now. So supporting us means a lot. <clears throat> if you want to uh, support us uh, in those ways, you can go to our support page, verybadwizards.com slash support. There you'll find links to our Patreon page where you can choose to support us for a couple of different dollar amounts. You can get a number of things, including Tamler rambling on about David Lynch movies um, for like probably 12 hours by now. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of hours. Patreon supporters go get. But also not just me, also you, right? Not just me. You can hear, if by the time you're hearing this, we will have released a special Barry Lamb episode where he and I discuss the new Star Trek Picard for the for the real nerds uh, in, in the audience. So you can hear that. Um, and if you can't, if you're one of those places that doesn't let you give us Patreon support, uh, you can donate via PayPal one time or monthly, and we very much appreciate those as well. So thank you to everybody uh, for continuing to support us. Uh, we really appreciate it, and we hope that what we're giving you is worth it. Yeah, one other thing. Our Patreon supporters don't just give us um, financial support, but also ideas. And I, we just put out a call for suggestions for our Patreon-selected episode that are... Uh, very special $5 and up supporters will then get to vote on once we narrow down to some finalists. Uh, I, I put out the call a couple of days ago. We've already got a ton of good suggestions. So it's, it's, it's really, it's really fun. It's really um, uh, encouraging and 
necessary and those, for those, us. Those We're running out us, of ideas. I know. Those always give us fodder for like six months. Um, oh, the, you know what? The last thing I'll say is uh, we did a, a couple of live streams and we might we might do some more if, if people want to hear them. Um, but you can go to, I should put a link to, to it's actually on my YouTube page um, where you can see live stream with Paul and with Yoel and just Tamler and I. Um, you know, I don't know how fun they are out of liveness, but but people are watching them, so go check them out. Yeah, that was fun. It was fun to do it with Paul. Um, actually, we we brought up Nietzsche at one point when we were talking about writing styles, and it was he was saying that he doesn't have any time for the like Wittgenstein and his aphoristic kind of obscure, more obscure style, and I was saying that when people do it well, it's it can really work. And I think Nietzsche is one of those people who does it well. On that note, let us begin this discussion because we're going to have a little bit of an agree to disagree moments here, I think. I think we might have some, <laughs> we might have an argument. This could be a fight, people. <laughs> I, neither of us really know. I think Dave has a suspicion about how I, what I think of this text, but I don't really know what Dave thinks about it. We haven't talked about it at all yet. So, um, But let me just give a quick introduction. So Twilight of the Idols, we're talking about the, the first five chapters after the arrows and epigrams section of the text, which is just really short, kind of almost disconnected sayings. This is where, like, what doesn't kill you will make you stronger. That saying, you can find it there. You can find dear to my heart. I distrust all systematizers and stay out of their way. The will to a system is the lack of integrity. I, that, should, that should be my Twitter profile. That is, that is circled in red on my PDF of this because it explains a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, the, the chapters that we agreed to read are uh, the first five after that in the text. Uh, Twilight of the Idols, it's one of his later works. I guess it's the last one in his, what they call, his scholars call it the middle period before he went off the deep end a bit. Uh, and it's written in that famous aphoristic style, short numbered sections. It's, they're hyperbolic, full of ambition and passion and insults and provocation and questions without answers. Um, but I think unlike some of his other books, like, you know, thus spoke Zarathustra. What the fuck? Zarathustra. Zarathustra and the gay science. I think you sound like a Spaniard having a stroke. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> His, these chapters have a kind of unity or a kind of at least coherence, I think. Now, he takes shots at a lot of things they range far and wide socrates plato dialectic reasoning reason in general right like the i feel like the greeks is his big you know in a diss track that's two out of three verses the greeks right but also the distinction between the real and the apparent i guess he attributes that to plato but then also christianity and moralism since plato kant a real bit a real shot there <laughs> like shots fired <laughs> utilitarianism a little bit not as much as in some other works um the belief in free will the belief in a kind of unified self and a lot more but i think there's a common thread that ties together all of these things that nietzsche 
shows so much contempt for. I think he sees them all as as a dishonest form of escapism, like a failure to embrace what's real, what's spontaneous, what's vital, right? For Nietzsche, these things, all of them show a failure to embrace life and to embrace ourselves and our deep, like our deepest selves for what we really are. And he thinks that, you know, Christianity, Plato, moralism, Kant, they're kind of blasphemy because they degrade life and the senses and the emotions and the body. And not only do they degrade those things, but they're dishonest about why they're doing it. So Socrates, which he starts out with, Nietzsche says, has a kind of illness. He was sick of life. And his relentless use of that dialectic, in, you know, that you find in all the dialogues, that was an expression for Nietzsche of his ugliness and also his fatigue and hostility towards the real world. And the Christian moralists, they want to rule, they want to tame or eliminate the drives and instincts that, like the drives, are our, our, our instincts, our spontaneous, not motives, because one thing I want to talk about is the difference between drives and motives. But whatever the things are that the moralists want to tame or eliminate for Nietzsche are the most vital part of human life. And he says that only healthy, the only healthy morality is ruled by those instincts. So you know what? Tell the chicks in your class uh, about the blow, well, not the blow job you got in the club, <laughs> the time you, you ate a girl's pussy in a club in front of everybody. Uh, he should have like, I don't know if that would hold in court, but like, uh, but anyway, couple, we'll get into all of this and more, but, but so here's a couple questions for you. Was this your first time seriously reading Nietzsche? And were you able to get past his pot shots at your boy, Emmanuel? No, this I had read in college, I think, uh, his book on uh, Beyond Good and Evil, but I didn't remember it. <clears throat> so it had been a long time I hadn't exposed myself <laughs> to this wonderful set of aphorisms. So I, I was able to get beyond the pot shots at Kant. I was a little offended at his use of Socrates' physical appearance to, to <laughs> like... He's just so blatantly says Socrates was ugly and we know that bad people tend to be ugly. Uh, <laughs> well, but he has this thing. I mean, I agree. It, it doesn't it, – it, it, I could see how it would make you uncomfortable, you hypersensitive people. But I think it, it's, it's in line with his view that our physiology is what really is the cause of everything essentially. That's a – yeah, that's a really weird undertone throughout the whole thing that I think we should talk about. Um, because at first I was like, what the fuck is he talking about? His physiology, you know, like <clears> – <throat> but – but okay, so uh, like I'll I'll tell you what I was feeling <laughs> in in a in in a desire to embrace Nietzsche's call to to uh, be, pay attention to our instincts and emotions. These were mine. I read the epigrams and arrows section, and I was fucking like I I almost just texted you and said like. Like no, we're not going to do this. This but is we didn't, stupid. This, we, I was. <laughs> I told you. To, I didn't say to read that. Well, I read the intro and the epigrams. Oh, okay. Like I'm not going to just. Like, <laughs> I'm a completist of sorts, and um, and I was like, what the fuck? I was like mad at you. I, I was like, what? Like this shit doesn't make any sense. Like, uh, he, like there's one there's one aphorism where he's like, where he talks about the truth of dentists. Where I'm like, this is just rambling. Like I had read in the intro that this was right before 
he kind of lost it. And I was like, no, this is as he lost it. Like this was here's one. <laughs> this is him losing. Can it. a donkey be tragic to perish <laughs> beneath a load one can neither carry nor cast off? The ease of the philosopher. <laughs> How little it takes to make us happy. The sound of a bagpipe. <laughs> I was like, wait, bagpipes made him happy. And I'm reading it and I'm like, this sounds like the ramblings of an angry, like, incel guy that you found after he shot everyone up, you know? <laughs> like, I, like, I just didn't get it. So, so okay. But what At happens that point, when you read, like, what I suggested that we read? Then, as I'm reading it, we start off with the problem of Socrates, and he's talking about how ugly Socrates is. And I'm like, he's not redeeming himself. Like, I'm like, you know, in fact, I stopped at this point. I think I read, I finished the Socrates section. And I was like, this is just dumb. Like his anti-rationality and, and Socrates being sick because he do, doesn't like life. I'm still not, You're not, on, board not on, on his side. I'm not on board. And then I'll be honest, like I started reading the reason and philosophy section. That's a great chapter. It's, it's great. And he defends a, a sort of realism. And when he actually is outlining why, or outlining is the wrong word because nowhere near that orderly. But when he's talking about this weird desire to divide reality into this and some other unseen second reality yeah the apparent this, this, and the yeah, real the apparent, yeah right like what Kant would call the noumenal or the world of forms i started getting on board because i was like yeah that that is a weird move and he is right it's a move that plato made it's a move that Kant made and he accuses Kant of being a sneaky christian which i think he was i think he's right and he says this world and this life is what it is and if you're saying that we shouldn't trust our senses, you're basically saying, you know, we shouldn't trust science. We shouldn't trust the very, the only thing that we have. And that's where I started to get on board. And honestly, I think he started to get better, but it might just be that I, like I started <laughs> to open myself up a little bit more. Uh, and I don't agree with everything he says later. I think he's weird. He's weird in a way that Freud was weird. In some ways, like he has like a very odd, like when he talks about maybe this, this happiness that Christians are, maybe they're just confusing it with good digestion. <laughs> well, I mean, like, I think they're similar, right? They both have this idea that a lot of the um, beliefs that we have, what we take to be our motivations are not actually our motivations. They go back to something that is in some ways you would think is completely disconnected from from it um for for freud it's more your past and how you were treated by your mother and all those kinds of sexual uh, urges that you that you had as a kid you know i don't i'm not we're gonna talk about freud soon i think but um for nietzsche it is it's even more like part of your just biology part of your physiology essentially he thinks a lot of philosophy and morality and religion is just an expression of how you are physically you know he wants to bring i think your you know your belief system your values in line with try to recognize where these values are coming from and stop deceiving yourself he he hates the dishonest what, what he calls the dishonesty of these people who think that they're finding some higher truth or some higher morality 
but but in fact, it's just an expression of of, of either revenge, resentment, or uh, a fatigue or hostility to life in general. Right. Really quickly, broadly, um, just to f- uh, finish my broad um, take on on this, which is that I got more on his side about a lot of this stuff. I still, as you might expect. I still think he's wrong about what reason is and how it ought to guide us. But I I don't hold it against him because if reason is the thing the thing that he is arguing against the way that he presents it, you know, this thing that leads to Kantianism or Platonic realism or whatever, then okay, then I get it. I, I just don't think that's like that, that he's mounting a really good argument against reason in the way that I would use it or in the way analytic philosophers would use it. But Well, you, you I, I think so that's actually a good bridge into his problem with Socrates, who I don't think was doing it in the way, you know, Kant was or some of the idealists were um, that he criticizes later. One thing just to follow up on a, your thought, I mean, his moral psychology reminds me a lot of the kind of moral psychology that John Haidt reinitiated in the early 2000s. The reason being a post hoc justification in his view for our emotions or our intuitions and here for something even deeper and maybe less uh, accessible to us. But I mean, I think that is, that's a running theme throughout is that this reasoning is laughably and and almost and transparently after the fact and it's just it drives him crazy that people aren't recognizing that right so let, maybe you could talk a little bit about then his his what i find to be an odd dislike of the socratic method because just the method of trying you know trying to reason through ideas he he seems to have real disdain for it um in a way that like I, like I said, I get it if it leads to platonic – I said realism before. I meant idealism. I, I get it if it leads to that. But I don't get it in, the, in that low level like let's talk together and figure out what we mean by justice kind of way. Yeah, so let's – yeah, let's talk about that. I think the Socrates one is a little surprising because, you know, in some ways they're fairly – they're fairly similar in terms of what they take their goal to be. Socrates was trying to shock people out of their comfortable beliefs in the way that I think Nietzsche is also trying to do. He was Nietzsche is trying to be the you know a, a gadfly in the way that Socrates was, and so it is. It's it's a little shocking to see him come out and attack Socrates with such disdain right at the beginning. But I. It's something about this dialectic, giving reasons for things. He says, so here's a quote, before Socrates, dialectical manners were rejected in good society. They were taken to be bad manners. They were a compromising exposure. Um, Respectable things like respectable people just don't carry their reasons around on their (laughs) sleeves like that. (laughs) Showing your whole hand is improper. Whatever has to get itself proved in advance isn't worth much. Wherever authority is still considered good form so that one does not have to give reasons but commands, the dialectician is a sort of clown. People laugh at him. They don't take him seriously. And then he says he kind of does this diagnosis of him as using reason as self-defense, you know, like because he was 
he was poor and he was ugly. He was, he says, he has a dialectician. He has a merciless instrument at hand. One can play the tyrant in it. One compromises by conquering. The dialectician lays on his opponent the burden of proving that he is not an idiot. He infuriates and at the same time he paralyzes. The dialectician disempowers the intellect of his opponent. What? Is dialectic just a form of revenge in Socrates? That's a great, I like, I like the way he just ends that. Uh, so this is one thing that I, I, that surprised me was the part of this where he says earlier, um, to, to quote again, he says, uh, Socrates was rabble. We know we can still see for ourselves how ugly he was. And then when he talks about that, that right before that quote that you just started, he says, primarily a noble taste is thereby defeated with dialectic. The rabble rises to the top. And it's a weird sort of classism that I didn't, I didn't get. I didn't get, but, you know, and here's where he throws one at the Jews. This is why the Jews were dialecticians. <laughs> right, yes. And, and I take it what he means there is that people who were low power, yes. right, low, low members of society, were able to rise to the top through this trick. Yes, right. And I think, like with the Jews and like with Socrates, he has a kind of respect that they're able to do it, you know? Like, yeah. even with Socrates, he's like, <laughs> but they got him to take him seriously. How did he do that? You know, like, I think there is a, I don't know, grudging form sort of respect, but I think that, you know, he really doesn't think that everything needs to be justified um, because he values spontaneity and these kind of instincts and unconscious drives so much that when you start to subject everything to a kind of critical scrutiny, you're deadening it. You're taking, you're, you're taking the life out of it. And I think that's his problem, even with the kind of reason that you would say is is okay because it's not trying to lead to some other world of forms or some noumenal world or anything like that or trying to ground morality in some implausible way. It's just demanding reasons for everything, for how you use a word, for how you, you know, for, for your job. I don't think he thinks life should be scrutinized in in that way that because it gets in the way of what we the things that are most vital about it that's my reading of this i think right there is this um this strand of thinking where like william blake for instance sort of championed lucifer in in this way like he took milton's lucifer and made made the lucifer represent the energy and vitality of life. And he was very much didn't believe that we should be suppressing our urges, our natural inclinations. And he thought that the source of all energy of life were these things in a way that I think is very consistent with, with what Nietzsche is saying. And this is where, you know, I guess Freud read Nietzsche, even though he's, Freud says that Nietzsche didn't influence him, but, but it's hard not to see a very similar idea in Freud where things that, all of our energy, every motivation, every every in instinct, every every desire to do anything comes from uh, the dynamic unconscious, and the dynamic unconscious is the seat of energy, and that's primarily sexual energy, and sexual in a very broad way. So there is this strand, I think, in you know, in the eighteen hundreds of this uh, pushing against it, and I get what he's saying. Like if you had you know, if you had to decide, like, remember that famous Darwin where, um, where the anecdote where he made a list of whether he should marry 
uh, this person or not, right? He's making a list of pros and cons. And I think this is where Nietzsche or Blake or Freud would say, well, dude, like there is where you're killing the whole point of love, right? The whole point of romantic love. So if you let everything be questioned by your reasoning, you're going to miss out on at the very least, and this is where I would agree with him, but like at, at a minimum, what you're missing out on is stuff that would make you happy. And philosophy and religion haven't really, be, they've been in the business of saying they're going to make you happy and actually making you miserable for the sake of a different world. Yes, exactly. They, they attack this world. They're always trying to make you ashamed of your emotions and your drives and your desires and your appetites. Uh, either trying to eliminate them or make you atone for them or feel guilt for them. And then you- and dualism does that too, right? Like that the dualism of of Christianity, uh, the dualism of Plato and, and you Descartes. Know, you can, yeah. It, right. It, that can lead to a real, real like this body isn't the thing that we should be listening to, right? We should be paying attention to the health of our soul or whatever it is. Yeah, and that's the thing that that he hates. And he also so I think he hates it on two levels. He hates it from a value level. He thinks it is some like you are ruining the whole point of life, you know, the vitality of your experience. You're deflating it. But then also, you know, when someone like Darwin makes a list and he thinks, well, this is I'm doing this because like I want to make sure this is a prudent decision and it's why No, that's not why he's doing it according to Nietzsche. I think he's doing it cuz he's a depressed guy. He's got this like deep depression and that depression paralyzes him and makes him unable to make a decision. And so he does, he, he writes this list. That's, there's just an expression of that, even though he thinks it's the other way. Like I'm going to make this list so that I know if I'll be happy with the, with the woman. I'm laughing because I pulled up, I'm pulled up the list. <laughs> and he's like, if not Mary travel Europe. It's like yes, very, very true. If 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 Mary means limited, feel duty to work for money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, but totally, like the cause and effect part of of Nietzsche it would very much say that Darwin was suffering from what I don't know the word, but a listlessness. And that's what's causing him to make a boring list. Right. Exactly. Oh, that could oh, be good. That, that could not, be. Oh, a, that's that, <laughs> you could be writing aphorisms right now. Uh, the listlessness uh. causes the list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then his criticism of philosophers in the reason section. So first he says they think they're honoring a thing if they dehistoricize it, if they see it subspecie adernity, if they take it out of its historical context take it out of anything like that's concrete. They think they're honoring it, but in, but actually they're just killing it. I have a big question mark in the first paragraph of the section because he says he says that they they're Egyptianist. Says they have yeah, Egyptianism. I don't know that. <laughs> and, and I was going to text you and be like, you know, I'm just waiting for you to accuse me of Egyptianism. I don't know what it means yet, but but I feel like it's a cool word. I don't know what it means either, but I feel like you definitely have an Egyptianism. <laughs> Maybe it just means this. Uh, that everything that philosophers have handled, has, you know, for thousands of years has been conceptual mummies. Nothing yes, real escaped saying. their hands alive. Right. You are taking, you are taking away the body you're in, you're, you know. Like, think about what mummification is. It's removing the vital organs. It is making something that used to be alive, uh, plucking it from that 
right? It can't decompose in the earth. It is in this box wrapped. And it's abstracted, right? Like it's, and it's abstracted. It's abstracted. It's, the, you know, it's, it's forced into some system. And, you know, but once to force it into the system, you have to take it out of its original context and its particularity. I mean, this is where I just totally... I'm just nodding my head at great. Yep. Yeah. This is where you're just jerking off and like your, your Kindle or whatever. It just has jizz all over. So I want to read uh, this paragraph and see what you exactly. exactly. <laughs> now they all b- believe desperately even in what is, but since they can't get it into their clutches, they look for reasons why it's being withheld for them. There has to be an illusion, a deception at work. What that prevents us from perceiving what is, where's the deceiver? We've got the deceiver, they cry happily. It's sensation. These senses, which are so immoral anyway, deceive us about the true world. Moral, free yourself from the senses. Deceit, from becoming, from history, from the lie. History is nothing but belief in the senses, belief in the lie. Moral, say no to everything that lends credence to the senses, to all the rest of humanity, all that is just the masses. Be a philosopher, be a mummy. Portray monototheism with a gravedigger's pantomime and above all, away with the body, this pathetic ide fix of the senses, afflicted with every logical error there is, refuted, even impossible, although it has the nerve to behave as if it were real. I mean, I think there's just a lot to that. There's a, I get a little piece of joy when we've underlined the same, uh, the same thing. Um, I just want to give a little, a little acknowledgement to the cleverness of monotonotheism instead of mon- monotheism. <laughs> yes, that's great. <laughs> I, I assume that's uh, a translator, like translating a different pun, but I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah I, I, I don't know. That's, right. yeah. it's, I'm sure it's beautiful in its original German, so our, our, our German listeners can, t- can tell us. Yeah, no, this is the point where I, I was kind of on board, where earlier he says, they kill and stuff whatever they worship, these gentlemen who idolize concepts. That's the twilight of the idols, right? When you were reading that, I was thinking, you know, this is the same bullshit about simulations. We're in a simulation. We, can't, we have to doubt our senses. And I think he's right to say, like, where did that step come from? Like, what is that step? Why are you going there? It, there's no evidence that there is something beyond our senses, just almost by definition, right? There's yeah, <laughs> like there's no way to acquire knowledge of anything, right? Right. Yeah, immediate experience is the thing that we're and and he gets pretty philosophical. Like he thinks it's incoherent what they're suggesting that we can just step outside our perspective and make judgments, either value judgments or judgments about truth, true reality. Without and we don't realize that the very concepts that we are. Uh, using to to make those judgments are part of our immediate, like they're built into our immediate experience. Like that's, where did we get them from in the first place? I have to read this part in section three of that chapter. And what fine tools of observation we have in our senses. This nose, for instance, of which no philosopher has yet spoken with admiration and gratitude, is in fact the most delicate instrument at our disposal. It can register minimal differences in motion, which even the spectroscope fails to register. The extent to which we possess science today is precisely the extent to which we have decided to accept the testimony of the senses and learn to sharpen them, arm them, and think them through to their end. So there's the kind of reason that he's not taking a pot shot at. He's saying, if you start with the senses and the knowledge that the senses are going to bring you, you can, at that point, use reason to think things through to their end. And that's what becomes a formal science. I, I do think, though, he would take a, an attitude towards science that maybe 
you would disagree with. Like, I think he would reject a kind of realism that science is going to give us the true reality. I think he would think of science still as, uh, as, as the tools of people working within a particular perspective. And you can't step outside of that and get to the real world. Even the kind of science that is starting from the senses, it, it sometimes has aspirations to correct for the distortions that our senses bring and also like just things our senses can't perceive. Yeah, I if that's what he's saying, I guess I would disagree. I it is a bit unclear because in the right above what I read, he does say the apparent world is the only world. Right? He's just said that the testimony of our senses give us the apparent world and guess what? The apparent world is the world. Right? There's nothing else. And I think to the extent that science at least tries to describe the apparent world, then it's not it's not erring. I, like he might, they might be flawed in the way that they acquire the information, but that's the only way they could acquire information, right? Yes, I just think that like if if you think science is giving you the real and like the apparent is our tools for getting there, but um, and so you're obviously going to need observations to collect data and perform experiments and stuff but the but if you think that is giving you the reality that transcends that's beyond like our experience of it that's where i think he would jump off board you know this is his perspectivalism he really doesn't think and he also doesn't think we should aspire to that like the world itself is so like you know in the nietzschean romantic style it's 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 so wondrous and so full of uncertainty that we should embrace and not try to contain in some box and find you know every law for so i read this this paragraph about the nose where he says the extent to which we possess science today is precisely the extent to which we've decided to accept the testimony of the senses i read that as a form of realism a, a realism that just says the things that we can actually sense are the only real thing. And guess what? We, we have access to those. I'm, I'm, I don't know the rest of his works, but I, I don't see him saying what you're saying. But he's just flirting with some form of realism, a very limited one that's not... I think that this is... It, it's underdefined what he really believes here. I think that we're both reading our desires into his, his, um, but I think that at least you're right about that might make sense of his mockery of, um, Democritus's Adam. One thing for sure is that he's, is not at all doing metaphysics. <laughs> he is not interested in that game. He wants to talk about reality and he wants to talk about life. Well, I want to talk about the Democritus uh, thing because there's it ends with a very puzzling passage. Where where is so that? section five of that of the reason chapter? He says, in fact, nothing up to now has been more naively persuasive than the error of being, as it was form formulated by the Eleatics, for instance, like Parmenides. After all, it has on its side every word, every sentence we speak. Even the opponents of the Eleatics fell prey to the seduction of their concept of being, and this happened to Democritus. Among others, when he invented his Adam, reason in language, oh, what a tricky old woman she is. I'm afraid we're not rid of God because we still believe in grammar. It's that, it's that we st we're not rid of God because we still believe in grammar. To the extent that science thinks it can transcend language and not be shaped inevitably by our language and, and have a kind of contingency, 
that's built into our language, that, that's just built into the fact that it comes from our language, that aspiration of science, I think he wouldn't be on board with. But every other aspiration, which is just making sense of what we experience, I think he's, he's, he applauds, especially since it's also not philosophy. Yeah, I admit I don't I don't know I I wasn't sure what he was saying here. I read it as just yet another like dissing of of reason in the Socratic sense and not about talking about so he was referring to Democritus qua philosopher not qua scientist. But maybe definitely don't I your interpretation actually seems totally plausible to me about it. Uh, I just I just saying I don't I was like perplexed at the end of that one. I took it as a kind of that late Wittgenstein, like mm-hmm. the language, mm-hmm. like ultimately these are all language games, like in the end. It's hard because this is the kind of philosophy where he's saying a lot. And one of the things that I found myself trying to resist is the belief that just because he said something doesn't mean there's a deep meaning to it because he doesn't delve into right? It's like, you could make anything sound deep, right? You could just say a bunch of stuff like, you know, this the world is on the back of a turtle and like by that I mean that it, you know, it's you could interpret the shit out of that. And and when he just says reason and language, oh what a tricky old woman she is. I was also tempted to the Wittgensteinian view, but uh, I don't know what he like what he really thought. Well, we should talk about the form of it and to what extent you think that is essential or actually like uh, an obstacle to really getting at the philosophical substance of what he's saying. That's I, I taught this in a grad seminar in a t- class on philosophical genres. And the, one of the things that we were exploring is to what extent is this philosophy like you can't separate it from the form in which it's presented. And I, I think with Nietzsche... He, he's one of the best cases for that Nietzsche and Plato of just the form being so essential to the philosophy. And you, if you tried to write this as a like journal article, it just, it, it, it wouldn't work, you know, but I also, well, it, it would get desk, it would get desk rejected. <laughs> number one. Uh, yeah, for sure. But also like, even if for some way you could publish it, it, it just, if you did it in that form, the, there's something about what he's up to here, I think, that requires this kind of hyperbolic uh, and at times disconnected and times just puzzling. Like I, so I, I, it's what you said, right? You don't want to just attribute something deep when just because he's writing in a more obscure style sometimes. Um, at the same time, there is something, we know this with like reading Borges, for example, there is something really empowering to the reader when you don't give them in everything, and you let the reader do some work, you know? And so, like, it's, it's that balance that is tricky. And the, be- the, the, the worst ones, it's, 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 it's not worth the effort. But for the best people, it's worth the effort. And it's, there's something, I don't know, like, it's something deeply philosophical about engaging with a text that way. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, with caution, right? So I think I think part of the that that attitude that I had about being wary comes from first reading those uh, epigrams and arrows, where individual sentences that may or may not be speaking to something deep, um, right? They put me at at sort of a def- in a defensive way. Although some of them are funny, he says evil people don't have songs. How is it that Russians have songs? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, 
I don't know what that means. But <laughs> some of them are just jokes, right? They're probably like inside jokes that maybe you would get if you... Yeah. Like, he says, humanity does not strive for happiness. Only the English do. Yeah. I think that's a pot shot at utilitarians. <laughs> that's, uh, you know, yeah, like that's, their that's superficial funny. conception of happiness. He, he has a couple of shots at them. Just to put a bow on our true world versus apparent world, I want to read the... The fourth proposition, he gives these propositions uh, at the end of the reason chapter. And the fourth one I thought was really interesting. You alluded to it. Dividing the world into a true and apparent world, whether in the style of Christianity or in the style of Kant, a sneaky Christian to the end, (laughs) is merely a move inspired by uh, decadence, a symptom of declining life. The fact that the artist prizes appearance over reality is no objection to this proposition. For appearance here means reality once again, but in the form of a selection, an emphasis, a correction. Tragic artists are not pessimists. In fact, they say yes to everything questionable and terrible itself. They are Dionysian. What do you make of, you know, the tragic artists and, and the artist that is being championed at the end of the, cha- the chapter on reason? I like it. It's an insight, I think, that artists artists are stuck in reality, that that's what they're doing, and, and that's a good thing that they're doing, and that appearance is just reality. Does it collapse the distinction between art and philosophy or art and science? I think it's very in, in tune with our approach to this stuff, right, where he is saying, you know what? There is insight about reality and about life that comes from artists. And in fact, they have a particular kind of insight that not everybody has because they're, when an artist looks at something, it, it always strikes me as so amazing when a painter sees that like what their eye is seeing is not like a perfect square, right? There's perspective. Like, so their use of perspective is they are, they are using their eyes in a different way. They're not seeing a perfect rectangle when a door is open. They're seeing the slanted thing that it really is because they have to duplicate it on a canvas. And I think that that's both a literal and a figurative thing that artists do. I take it to mean that, that the the artist is grounded and there's insight into reality that comes from their art. Yeah, I guess the question, though, is if the artist is the hero here, then is philosophy and science a species of art for Nietzsche? That's a good question. You know, talk about the form of the... He, I, I would say he thinks so. I think that what he thinks he's doing is, is artistic. And because it's artistic, what he's trying to do is move us to feel some things that he says is true. He's not taking his time to syllogistically defend his ideas. This is why it's so easy to do pull quotes from from Nietzsche, right? There's a ton here that you could use just out of context. But the intro was saying this, the intro to this uh, volume that you sent me. They were saying, you could take a lot of what he says out of context, but it's not even clear what context there is within this. (laughs) Right. Right. There's no clear, you know, it's, it's not like, oh, he didn't, he didn't mean that. Yeah. I liked the intro and the way they talked about this. So the, in the introduction, Tracy, Tracy Lord, no, Uh, (laughs) 
Tracy something. Um, it's a guy. I looked up. I looked him up. The, he 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 gives kind of a a redescription, like a paraphrase of what you know. Hold on, you know Tracy Lords is a porn star. Yeah, right? I do. Okay, uh, it's not Tracy Lords. It's Tracy something else. <laughs> he gives like a paraphrase of the phil- the philosophical ideas that Nietzsche is expressing, and then goes back and says, but one may complain like this isn't Nietzsche. You're turning him into a dry analytic philosopher. Um, soon you'll be telling me whether or not his arguments are correct, ask, asking how we know what he tells us is to be true. And he says there's something important in that response. It's not like reading academic philosophy. There's something else that he's going for. He is trying to move us. He's not trying to just persuade us of a, a certain belief. Um, he is trying to move us in a certain way. And, I, and, and one of the questions I maybe I want to end with is what, what does he want? Like what, what does he want us to do? How does he want people to live? There's a lot of how we shouldn't live, but there's less, and, and there's a few lines like honoring the instincts. You know, that's the one natural good morality is one that would honor the instincts. But I don't know what that means exactly. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk about that too because it's, it sounds cool. The other thing I was going to say, by the way, Tracy Strong. Tracy Strong, is, yeah. Yeah, it from is. Southampton. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's unclear what his positive claim about morality is. And what I found myself thinking is like he could use a little bit of analysis here to tell us what he means by embracing instinct because for him, morality in the way that he uses the word is Christianity and, you know, like Neoplatonic Christianity and then platonic idealism and anything that that wants you to be virtuous for the sake of a different reality but i take it he's still anti like murder and rape right like there's a morality that exists but i don't i don't know it's it's very individualistic in the sense that it doesn't seem to involve other people you know what i mean that's right yeah that's that's right uh, this is, you know, this is why it reads like the ramblings of a loner kind of. Yeah, um, which he was. Although I, I, I think yeah. he was a very lonely person. And I think this is, as he would probably admit, an, partially an expression of that. Like it's also not done to an extent. It hasn't done Nietzsche favors in, in my book that the kind of people who quote Nietzsche are like the kind of people who quote Ayn Rand. <laughs> um so I was trying to remove myself of that, but it still does read like, you're right. That's a, a good insight that it's very individualistic. He doesn't talk, the whole time he talks about morality, he never talks about how we should treat other people. Yeah, no, that's right. right? For, that, for him, morality is just a denial of the passions. It is something about, I, I got this also from reading the sections of the gay science that we read. There's something about suffering and accepting it and not resisting it or trying to trying to design, use your science to try to like eliminate it, but to accept your, both your suffering and your happiness as part of one package of, you know, being alive that, and then embracing your drives and your instincts. But it's when you try to actually flesh out what that would mean, of course, there's the embracing of you know, like if you, if the eternal recurrence idea, if you were to live this same concrete life over and over again, say yes to that. Right, right. You don't need another world. 
um, you don't need the promise of another world to tell you. You don't need anything more than what you have, like, and the the reality of what you have. Not hey, where does where does Nietzsche talk about the eternal recurrence? He it first brings it up in the gay science, and then it uh, it's it most famously in thus spoke uh, Zarathustra. 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 Why why am I having <laughs> problems with that? You didn't used to hate yourself until Christianity told you that you're a piece of shit. That's a uh, it's a point that I like. But again, it's like, does he mean that you should be able to grab the pussies? Like, does he mean that you should be able to do whatever you want if you're driven by an impulse that's untainted by reason? No, I don't think so. Because he also, and I don't think this comes across as much here, but there is a kind of self-control that he also, there's a kind of self-control that allows you to transcend those impulses. Like, I think he would think that that's a kind of base impulse and you don't deny it or punish yourself for it, but you also don't necessarily act on it. So, and, and but it's a really tricky balance that I don't totally get. And I, maybe other Nietzsche people could help us out with, with right. that. You know who's a big Nietzsche fan is Nobe. Yeah, I'm sure. I, and I think like the, the kind of, and, and height too. Like, I think that the moral psychology here is is really wise. And it's, you know, no, of course, right? Like, morality is just built into our everyday concepts, even things that we would think are totally disconnected from morality. Like, that's the whole Josh Nob idea. Our morality, I don't know if Nob Nob doesn't think it's a sick morality, but it bleeds into our concepts like intention or whatever that we wouldn't think morality would affect but it does huh interesting i never thought about that way i mean i i do agree with you that it's very nietzschean um this whole resurgence of of moral psychology in the 2000s does seem very influenced by these ideas in a way that i actually reacted against at first um (laughs) in my dislike of of john height's original rational dog paper but yeah you can see you can see the genealogy so to speak (laughs) So I don't know. All I know is he doesn't provide us with enough information in this text to know what he means about more what what we ought to do or not. Uh, this seems like a straightforward em- embrace what you are as a human. Don't don't be led astray by this delusional worship of the idols. Let let those idols let, let the sun set on those those idols. Conceptualize. One thing we haven't talked about is some really interesting stuff on the self and. Like, he really does think, you know, he has an almost Buddhist conception, I think, of the There is a case, yeah, there is a case that I thought was brilliant, an example where he's talking about causation, right? So he doesn't believe, he thinks that it's an error to think that there is a self, that there is a consciousness, and that this this is acts in any way causally. He's like an epiphenomenalist or parallelist or something, right? He just, he doesn't believe that, that what we think is consciousness is doing any work. And he gives this example of a dream, which I found very compelling, where he says, you know, imagine that there's a distant cannon shot in your dream. Now, I've experienced this, where a sound will work itself into the narrative of my dream, but that sound is from outside. But it's true that sometimes it really seems as if that sound was part of the narrative in a way that it couldn't possibly have been because it happened and then my mind constructed a narrative around the dream. 
but it's like I saw someone walk up to the door and pound it, and that's when the cannon shot worked its way in. So he's saying, that's the illusion that makes us think that we have causal power over the world. And I, it's, I thought it was a really cool way of describing it. And this idea that we have this character that gives us motives and that that's why we act or that's why we ha- we have a mental state, like we feel something, and he says... Like that, that's the wrong way of thinking about it. It's like you have that mental state, you ha- you know, you're agitated or you're depressed or you're, or you're exuberant. And he says like, you won't even notice that you won't even acknowledge that you're in that state unless you can find some sort of motive of, or some sort of ex- explanation for why you feel like that. It's a sinful desire or it's a, what, uh, you know, or it's, what are the examples he uses? Evil spirits. Evil spirits or whatever. But in fact, like, those are the thing and we try, and then we construct explanations for them afterwards and he thinks, like, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't like, he thinks that's like explaining them away, you know? It's, this, this is actually a really nice, so the, the four great errors, I really liked this. This is as close as he gets to doing what I think is straight up analytical philosophy, analytic philosophy, because he nicely weaves in this error of thinking there's a self into his views on free will, then into his views on, on punishment and guilt and weaves it right back to his disdain for Christian morality and says, all of this shit, this belief that we are causing anything is just so that people can hold you accountable and punish you. Once that got placed, that once that took root, then those people had the power over us, right? He says, human beings were thought to be free so that they could be ruled, so that they could be punished, so that they could become guilty. Consequently, every action had to be thought of as willed. The origin of every action had to be thought to lie in consciousness, and thus the most fundamental act of counterfeiting in psychological matters was itself made into the principle of psychology. I thought that that turn, that that grouping together of the arguments was kind of beautiful. Yeah, and it's and it's very much in line with his whole genealogical approach to you know christian morality like how did how did that come about and with this it's how did this this belief in the self and a causa sui that kind of this ability to self-cause ourselves it starts with the like punishment like they they're punishing you now we have to figure out a way a reason for that why are they doing that well it's because you're responsible you're free you had this you and only you chose to act in a certain way to sin, to commit a crime. And so it starts with an error. He thinks it's just incoherent, this idea of uh, this self that causes things and then also gives, as he says, the psychological explanation of, of the error that ties also into his criticism of morality. It's great. So I will say I don't... I don't by that this is the origin of our sense of, of free will, like at least not the not the sort of Marxist, the people in power wanted to punish us, therefore we believed in free will. It could be an error, but I, you know, in the psychological way, but but I don't know about the sociological claim. I think that that's hyperbolic to an extent. I think it's an example of one of the reasons why we would construct this idea. But, you know, if you look at the history of it, as I did to some extent in the my relative justice book, the, the idea of this 
self that causes things really does take off with Christianity and is more dominant in the West that has been where Christian morality was the, you know, the dominant force. So like, I think there might be something to that. There might be a kind of error theory that you could construct out of this. Yeah. There's, um, God, I'm fucking blanking on the book, but a lot of our listeners have asked us to talk about it. It's by a, a, uh, psychiatrist who who believes that the very concept of mens rea and insanity was something that was brought about by the church's desire to be able to exonerate certain people like when when uh, a member of the royal family committed suicide it was <clears throat> thought that that you know committing suicide was a, a terrible sin and you wouldn't make it into heaven. But of course there's some pressure not to tell the Royal family that their kid's not going to make it into heaven. So they said, Oh no, they were temporarily insane. They couldn't make the decision. So then there's this distinction between, you know, when you are acting freely and intentionally and when you're not, and that can form the basis of the law. We can make exceptions when we need to, that might be very motivated. I mean, it has to be right because we act as if it's this distinction, almost like a scientific distinction between someone who's insane and somebody who's not. But obviously it's not like that. And so where you put that line has to be influenced by all these factors. Now, whether it's like people in a room decide, like it's not like some conspiracy, I don't think. I think these things, even for for Nietzsche, like they emerge almost organically and are themselves the result of this other kind of sickness but I, I also think the I, he also thinks it's it's like a product of language to some extent. The fact that we have this subject, just describing an action you did, you 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 say, I I went to the bathroom, it sounds like there's a you, an essential you. And so I think, you know, he believes that our language is also tricking us into um attributing to ourselves some sort of Cartesian subject. Yeah. Uh, by the way, the book that I was referring to is The Myth of Mental Illness, Illness by Thomas Saz, um, which is a very good book. I, yeah, I agree with you. And there's another. So he says, we favor this type of cause. The fact that something already familiar, I'm quoting here, the fact that something already familiar, something we've experienced, something inscribed in memory is posited as the cause is the first consequence of this requirement. So he says, we single out that kind of explanation, the causal self-explanation. So what do you think about his view on free will? I mean, I think he, he, he's very much like he finds libertarian free will to be incoherent. He has that passage in Beyond Good and Evil that freedom of the will is this kind of rape and perversion of logic uh, that tries to pull yourself with Baron Munchausen's audacity out of the swamps of nothingness, this causa sui. Now, I don't like. I I don't see why we have to think that that incoherent notion is free will. Like, I don't think free will is this concept, reified concept. Like, I think we can call free will what we want. And but in terms of the substance, like what he thinks we don't have, I I, I don't. Unless you're a libertarian, I think you you totally agree with him. Uh, yeah, I I do. What the part, the, the incoherence of libertarian free will, I'm totally on board for. And this, you know, people often ask me what I believe about free will. And it's, as we both know, like it's very difficult to say, well, I believe not in libertarian free will, but in this sort of 
constrained way in which we describe some things as, as free and therefore some things ought to be punished. That's the part that I really was not sure whether you would be on board with because he seems to think that the lack of libertarian free will completely exonerates us from punishment or that the very notion of guilt and punishment has to be from this libertarian notion. And I think you and I don't believe that. No, we don't. But I don't know if he does either. I think he just wants people to be honest about why they're, if they're punishing somebody, be honest about what, what it is that's going on here and don't pretend they deserve it in some absolute sense that is tied to the fact that they self-caused their behavior. So I, I don't think he's, he would be against resentment or i mean he has pro other problems with resentment i think he thinks it's something you should mostly transcend but but i think he feels like uh, the reactive attitudes are okay and punishment under circumstances is is okay but don't trick yourself into thinking that this is some sort of justice like absolute justice that's being done yeah i want i want to quote this last sentence but i'll quote i'll start earlier because it's <laughs> Beautiful. Today, when we have started in the opposite direction, when we immoralists are trying with all our strength to get the concepts of guilt and punishment back out of the world, Josh Green, and to purge psychology, history, nature, social institutions, and sanctions of these concepts, there is in our eyes no opposition more radical than that of the theologians who, with the concept of the moral order of the world, go on infecting the innocence of becoming with punishment and guilt. Christianity is a metaphysics of the hangman. That last sentence is just pretty, that's, that's it's a, awesome. That's a great line. There are a lot of great lines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's writing songs. He's not writing treaties. He's he's writing songs. Like I get why they're I get why the intro talks about music so much. Yeah. And it really in that way needs like a careful reading. And we haven't even read this whole text. I'm glad you read the epigrams and arrows. Uh, <laughs> even if it did make you angry um, at first. <laughs> I want to say that one other thing about the self. So I said it's like almost Buddhist conception and, and it also reminds me of Hume. He really has this idea on, on the one hand that like when you actually look for that self that's inside of you, like you can't find it. There's nothing there. But at the same time, there's also this thread where I think he thinks that we can, you know, through our work, through just living, we can create ourselves in some sense like through our works um almost like a work of art like living is is a work of art and there's this philosopher alexander nehemas who has he has a very influential reading of nietzsche and his style which is that that's what nietzsche takes himself to be doing is creating through his works creating himself building building but with the materials of what's just real and apparent he's building a self through his works but it's not a, this stable essential self it's a, you know it's, it's not like something that christians would tie to the soul or anything like that it's something that is that just evolves as 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 you continue living you know um uh, then he says, there is nothing that could rule, measure, compare, judge, or be our being, for that would mean ruling, measuring, comparing, and judging the whole, but there is nothing outside the whole that nobody is made responsible anymore and no, that no way of being may be traced back to a causa prima, that the world is not a unity, either a sensorium or a spirit. And this is, only this is the great liberation. In this way, 
only, the innocence of becoming is restored. And I think I don't see what you said in the text, right? Like, like he destroys the, the self, but he doesn't build anything other than this work. Like if you take the work to be this thing that we are reading is what he's doing. And it reminds me of this sort of like emanationism. This emanates from something. It's not him doing, willing, causing. It's just him becoming and it coming out of him. Like the way an artist can say, like artists often say, I don't know, this shit just came to me. There is little room for a self there. Yeah, but let me... So uh, there's a section in the gay science that I want to read to you that's on this exact thing. So I just need to get it up. This is um, 290 of the, the aphorism number 290 in the gay science. So he's, it's called One Thing is Needful. To give style to one's character, a great and rare art. It is practiced by those who survey all the strengths and weaknesses of their nature and then fit them into an artistic plan until every one of them appears as art and reason and even weaknesses delight the eye. Here a large mass of second nature has been added. There a piece of original nature has been removed, both times through long practice and daily work at it. Here the ugly that could not be removed is concealed. There it has been reinterpreted and made sublime. In the end, when the work is finished, it becomes evident how the constraint of a single taste governed and formed everything large and small. Whether this taste was good or bad is less important than one might suppose, if only it was a single taste. So it goes on in this thing, but at the end, for one thing is need, needful that a human being should attain satisfaction with himself, whether it be by means of this or that poetry and art, only then is a human being at all tolerable to behold. Whoever is dissatisfied with himself is continuously ready for revenge, and we others will be his victims, if only by having to endure his ugly sight, for the sight of what is ugly makes one bad and gloomy. <laughs> you know, now... I'm obviously not a Nietzsche scholar. I find, like, I find a this, what we read and what we're talking about is a weird romanticism. Totally. And, like, just on a quick Google search, I see that plenty of people have talked about Nietzsche and his engagement with romanticism, so his re rejection of all this uh, reason and his <clears throat> impulse toward the artistic. Yeah, like, the, you said, brought up William Blake earlier, right? Like, it's that kind of that strain and it's a reaction against the kind of hyper realism of the enlightenment and i think he's much later than those romantics he's like 60 or 70 years later but i think it's in reaction to to a different kind of like mechanized overly systematic view of the world through the improvements of science and the utilitarianism becoming but yeah absolutely but it is this idea that this is something that you can do. You can build yourself to the point where you are happy with yourself and you can embrace yourself and you're not trying to hide from what you are or who you are. You, but you can shape, you, 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 there is this kind of creation that he's talking about, shaping, maybe not creation, but a shaping that he thinks is important. Well, and in not, you know, and in simply not denying, right, and in, in sort of accepting that you are what you are, you know, he thinks that this is liberating and that what you, you know, you brought up being happy. There is a, there's a, a weird way that I, at least for me, I didn't realize like 
Nietzsche to me seemed like a pessimist, almost like an existentialist in my mind. Here he's like, no, this is what happiness is. Like, stop being miserable. Be happy. Like, there's a weird call to being happy. But in this section, in that little aphorism that I read, like where he says, for one thing is needful that a human being should attain satisfaction with himself. And he, he gives different ways of doing it, like depending on whether you're a strong or domineering nature or a weak nature. But either <laughs> way... You're a top or a bo- top or a bottom. <laughs> exactly. Either way, you can attain that satisfaction and you know you can give style to your character in a way that will make you happy with who you are so it's not just something that you it's not just accepting that you're not responsible that's not enough it, it there is a kind of there's a kind of action that y- that you have to take that you need to take it's needful yeah, it's it's weird like here's where my like you know analytic philosophy hat comes on and it, we get, like it's happy to accuse him of some sort of contradiction because you know what you read and what the section i was reading where he says we are not the consequence of a special intention a will a goal we are not being used in an attempt to reach an ideal of humanity or an ideal of happiness or an ideal of morality it is absurd to want to divert our essence towards some goal to so to say that it's absurd to divert your essence toward a goal is seems to me to contradict what you just read I, I agree. There is, there is a tension, but the he does he certainly doesn't think that each person should try to attain the same thing. Like when you start to build yourself, you start with a bunch of drives and a temperament and a physiology, and you have to work with that, not towards a goal that is concrete or something that you would learn from a book or something that you would learn from a a work of the Bible or something like that. But just with your materials, you can shape yourself to a point that you become happy with the product, with the final product. And then it's crucial that you can do that. And I think the first step is just recognizing that you're not responsible for your drives and your instincts and your you know, that's step one. But once you've realized that, there's other things that you can do. You're, you're right to point to Buddhism as, as you know, this is, this, is some, this is a tension that some people are happy with. It's a tension that I'm not happy with, um, but that some people s- simply accept as, as what it means to be what we are. That there is no self, but that doesn't mean that you can't attain some, some you know, important goal. I, so I, I'm like, I'm fine with that. But, you know, that's it is what it is, as they say. What he wants to just dis- what it's definitely not is like, you know, how to be a happy and successful person, like because it's going to be different for every person. You know, he's very much of a particularist about this thing. And he doesn't think that there's one thing that will work for everybody. I think he'd be very against like the Lori Santos school of like, you know, here's some tips to make yourself happier and more relaxed. And, you know, he did, he, he did seem to need to get laid. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I think that's the, like Freud. I don't know he, if he doesn't talk about Nietzsche. He, it seems like he could have a field day with him. It's funny. Like Freud, from what I know, he definitely read Nietzsche, but, but I don't know. I, I'm sure he said stuff about him in his, all his letters. Can I read an aphorism to end this? Yes. How much there once was for conscience to chew on. What good teeth it had. And today, what's it missing? A dentist's question. (laughs) Right. That's the dentist. (laughs) That's the, I found it. (laughs) Uh, Uh, I don't know what that means. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know. There's some. There are good ones. I mean, if we do Nietzsche again, and I think we maybe should, because there's a lot of great stuff. I'd love to talk more about the form of it because I do think there's something deeply, there's something deep about how the form and the content or the substance, philosophical substance are, are related. You know, one of the things I talked about a lot in the class is this is not something you can do now, you know? Right, right. I mean, it's <laughs> very much would be laughed at. Um, I mean, you could self-publish something, you know. <laughs> I mean, right. And and most people, it, it would deserve to be laughed at who who tried it. But I guess the idea is just this experimentation with form, you know, he really just got his own distinctive style of writing that was really a reflection of his his beliefs, his ideas, who he was. And our form is really not, it's not trying to do that. It, w- it would look down on it, I think. And so it's not even just this, just writing aphoristically, but just writing in a different kind of form. I think, you know, like if he didn't do this, we wouldn't get these ideas and they certainly wouldn't be as vivid, you know, as they Yeah, are. there's, uh, you know, I, again, don't know a lot about, uh, uh, really about all of the, especially non-analytic philosophy out there, but it seems to me that there is no longer a this halfway point for literature and philosophy. So you you're either a philosopher or you're or you're writing fiction that might be deep or not. It might be philosophically deep, but you're not writing this. You're not writing philosophy as literature. And con- I don't know, continental philosophers might still do this. You know, I probably wouldn't read it. Yeah, this is very Western, what we're talking about, like analytic and like English, English-speaking countries, like, you know, but um, that's totally true. And even like, you don't have to go back to Nietzsche. You just go to Camus and Sartre and they wrote novels and, and plays and um, and that was part of their philosophy. I mean, it was, it, they were novels, but they were expressions of their philosophy, Um and often really interesting ones. So, okay, this really has me excited to do Civilization and Its Discontents, by the way. Yeah, um, yeah. That's, so maybe we could do that. That next. should come up very soon. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, good discussion. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And the Nietzsche fans out there are probably mad at us. but Yeah, but if the Nietzsche fans are mad at us, at least let me say this. I went in not liking Nietzsche, and I came out liking him a little bit more. So, there. Yeah, there good. You. All right, well, join us next time on Very Bad Wizard. Just a very bad wizard.